So last week we introduced this idea of giving God the big yes. Giving God the big yes means that we are going to submit our entire lives to him. That we are going to submit everything. So often as Christians, we like God to kind of fix the parts that we deem broken, right? We don't like this thing about us. I don't like that I do this or that. And so I want to submit that to God. And I want God to fix that for me just so I can have a more comfortable life. And so we start calling that the little yeses. We give God a lot of small yeses. But oftentimes we hold back the big yes, saying, God, I will submit everything to you. Part of giving God the big yes, saying, God, my whole life, everything I have is yours. I want to submit it all to you. You can speak into everything. I'm not going to hide any sin from you. Everything, God, is yours. Part of giving the big yes means we care more about what God thinks than what man thinks. It's very difficult to do. It's so easy because men are around us all the time. Other humans are around us all the time. And they can have a lot of influence in our lives. So it's easy to let humans have more influence than God. And it's easy to begin to care more about what other people think of me than what God thinks of me. But giving the big yes means... That we care more about what God thinks than what humans think, and so we act accordingly. Instead of doing things to impress other humans, we do things because it's what God has called us to. We do things out of obedience to God's call on our lives. Because we know what he's called us to, and we want to live it out in obedience. But when we give the little yeses, when we don't submit all of our lives, our entire selves to God, we still live to impress others. And so we do things to impress other people. And we let other people begin to shape us more so than God. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our series called Following, a series uh, that is looking through the Sermon on the Mount. We titled it Following because if we remember, Jesus is preaching a sermon to a, a multitude of people. So he's got the disciples in front of him. You can picture the multitudes just beyond them. And then just beyond the multitude is the religious, self-righteous Pharisees of the day. And they had a lot of influence on the multitudes. The multitudes oftentimes cared more about what the Pharisees said because the Pharisees knew Scripture. The Pharisees knew it inside and out. And so oftentimes, when they wanted to know, like, what does Scripture mean, they'd turn towards the religious leaders of the day. And the religious leaders of the day would give the opinion, and then the opinion would become law. For example... When they wanted to honor God by keeping the Sabbath day holy, they asked the question to the religious leaders, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? And the religious leaders responded, here's what it means. And they drew a lot of lines around what you can do to keep the, religi- or the Sabbath day holy. One of those was you had to cover every single mirror because, you know, a woman seeing her hair out of place and fixing her hair would be work and that would be unholy. 
So before Sabbath, you had to cover every single mirror so that the woman wouldn't accidentally do some work when her hair was out of place. Those are some tremendous hoops to jump through. Some of us, we don't have to worry about that. But they did other things, like they drew boundaries around how far you could walk. And that became law. And what's interesting to me, so interesting about that, is is what the Pharisees said became more important than what actual Scripture said. And sometimes we do that too, right? We look towards commentaries to explain the Bible, which is a good thing. We want to know what the Bible means. We look towards preachers to explain the Bible. That's a good thing. We want to know what the Bible means. But then sometimes we can start to elevate the opinions of commentary and of preachers over Scripture. And that's not a good thing. And so Jesus was confronting this, and he was confronting this self-righteous religion that the Pharisees had. This legalistic self-righteous religion that, the, that was influencing the multitudes. And basic, his basic question throughout the Sermon on the Mount was, are you going to follow Jesus, or are you going to continue to follow the self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees? That is the question of the Sermon on the Mount. And so everything we read as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to read it through this lens, including what we read today. But before we even get into our section today, I think it's important to remember that this is a sermon. Now, as we deliver our sermons every week, we break it up because it would just be too much to try to, to cover the entire sermon in one week. And so since we always break it up and we kind of try to identify an outline and, and we break it into bits and parts, we oftentimes forget that the Sermon on the Mount is one sermon. And it all flows together. So as we get into uh, our section today, he's going to talk a lot about practicing your righteousness before other people. Now, we can't read that and separate it out from the rest of the sermon. So before we even jump in, we need to, we need to work through a couple ideas that we've already looked at. And the first one is verse, uh, chapter fi- 5, verse 15, where he says, uh, "...nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket." but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So which is it? You know, if, if, we, just, if, if we didn't read this all in context and try to figure out what Jesus is saying, we might say that Jesus is contradicting himself, right? Because we start off and uh, uh, we read that, let everyone see your good works, right? So that they can give glory to your Father in heaven. And then we, we fast forward to uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Well, which is it? Jesus, are we supposed to let people see our good works? Or are we supposed to hide our good works? And I think the context gives us key. When we're looking at verse 16, he's talking about a community that is thriving, a community that is flourishing, a people who have changed hearts because God has changed them. And so he's not saying, go do these, uh, uh, practice these spiritual uh, practices in front of others so that people can see how super righteous you are. He's saying, look, as a community, come together, do your works together, and as people from the outside look in, they are going to see a transformed community. And they're going to say, wait, what's going on? How come these people that probably shouldn't get along actually love each other? How is it that these people continue to love each other? And then they glorify God. 
But in chapter 6, verse 1, practicing your righteousness before other people, he's addressing what are called spiritual practices. We'll get a little bit more into it, but, you know, uh, when we think of spiritual practices, practices that, w- that mature us in the position God has put, placed us in, that mature us as Christians, that grow us as Christians, we often think of prayer, Bible reading, and going to Sunday service, right? Those are like spiritual practices that if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to mature in your spiritual relationship, you do those things. Well, for Second Temple Judaism, uh, the synagogue was where they would go, but the synagogue was like a community center. It's where everything in the community happened. So you'd go to synagogue just about every day. So that wasn't thought of really as a spiritual practice. That was just thought of as an everyday occurrence. And then the only scripture typically that was in a community was at the synagogue. We are so lucky. Each one of us has our own Bible for the most part. Some of us have like several different translations laying around your house all over the place. And you get kind of picky about which Bible you get to read, right? Well, they didn't have that. So reading your Bible, having a nice quiet time early in the morning with a cup of coffee before the kids get up, man, we're spoiled. They didn't have that. So that wasn't, so reading your Bible even wasn't considered a spiritual practice. So the spiritual practices, what they believed helped you to mature in Christ were giving to the needy, self-sacrificial giving, prayer, and fasting. And when you did those things, God used them to help mature you in your relationship with God. And as a result, there were these self-righteous people, the self-righteous religious elites that wanted to prove how righteous they were. They wanted the world to see that they were the righteous ones. And so they went out and they practiced these things in front of other people just to prove, hey, I'm righteous. So that's the difference. When we look at uh, chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, the people that are out doing their good works in front of other people is a community of people, community of people coming together and they're living this life from a changed heart. Versus what Jesus is going to address today, which is people who are, who are self-righteous, who want to proclaim to the world and show the world, hey, I'm holier than thou. So that's one of the, the pieces of scripture that we need to le- read this in context with. Something else we need to think about is going all the way to uh, chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then also uh, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So these two ideas are connected with the instructions that Jesus is going to give. They're not separated out, right? The self-righteous religion of the day does things for man's attention. 
So if you think you are righteous, or, or they do it so you think they are righteous, but really all, their heart is all about glorifying themselves. And that's why Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were out there practicing the righteousness, right? They were doing those spiritual practices that they believed made them grow. And yet Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed it. He's going to explain part of how we let that happen. And how we can be perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That striving for, for uh, displaying what He has done in our lives. If you want to exceed their righteousness and be perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect, then you need to care more about how God views you and less about how man views you. Care more about God than other humans. And with that in mind, let's jump in. We're just going to read verses 1 through 4, and we're going to skip the section on prayer this week. We'll get into that next week. And then we're going to do 16 through 18. So next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about prayer. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. So this section starts off with a warning, be where? That's a warning. So he's gone through and he's, he's given us the, the Beatitudes, right? And he's told us who, who is really blessed. And then he's gone through and he's set this bar of like, your, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And then he went through and he kind of gave us a better explanation of Scripture with the, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. And he's saying, this is the proper interpretation of Scripture and the proper application of Scripture. And then he, get, he gets into this warning, beware. If Jesus is giving a warning, we better heed that warning, right? We need to explore what that warning means. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. There's a warning sign, a huge warning flashing. Watch out. Here is a trap for you. When you practice your righteousness in front of other people, this is a warning. You're heading down the wrong path when you're doing it in front of other people. So the Greek word translated righteousness is dekaiosune, and it means to be in right relationship. It could, be a, it could be thought of as or applied to all kinds of different relationships. In particular, when you read it in Scripture, it applies to your relationship with God. To be in right relationship. So to practice righteousness, to be in right relationship with God, is to, is to have... 
to practice this out, to live it out, to live out this right relationship with God, how does that play out in your life? So once again, the, the second temple Jew believed that to practice this out, to have this right relationship with God, meant to do these certain practices. If you were doing these practices, that would prove, that would show to the world that you were in right relationship with God. So he's giving this warning about doing this practice in front of the world. Giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. Be careful. The word in front of others is theomai, and it's where we get our word for theater. The idea is that people were putting on a show. They wanted others to see their expressions of being in a right relationship with God. They were putting on a show so that others could see their righteousness. I think there's a few reasons why people like to practice their righteousness in front of others. One is that they want others to see their righteousness. Essentially, this is a self-righteousness that is put on display for others to see. It's this idea of, I believe I am righteous, which means I am holier than thou. So I will display it to show you how much better I am than you. It's a self-righteousness. I think the other reason why people like to display their righteousness in front of others is because they don't actually believe that they are righteous. Thus, they desire that others affirm their righteousness. I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever felt like some guilt and some shame? And so in order to cover up your guilt and your shame, you practice some form of righteousness in front of someone else so that they give you the compliment. And then you all of a sudden feel better about yourself. Have you ever done that? Is it just just me? And so you go around covering up your own shame by practicing your own self-righteousness in front of other people so that you can get their praise and make yourself feel better. In both of these cases, the one who is practicing righteousness, who is displaying their righteousness for all to see, is caring more about what people think than what God thinks. So Jesus here is warning about practicing these religious expressions of being right with God in front of others. Because when we do that, the temptation is to act out for man's approval. And to act out for man's approval instead of God's is a heavy weight to bear. I hope I'm never a famous preacher because I don't want that temptation. I've seen too many and I've, I've heard of too many famous preachers that had a godly desire become famous and to hear the sing or the praise of other humans, to hear them sing your praise is like a drug that it is too easy to get hooked on. And pretty soon they start twisting their theology to fit more in line with culture because, hey, you want the culture to love you. You want the people to love you. And so you twist your theology a little bit here and a little bit there, and pretty soon you've lost 
any core theology at all, and it's all because you've been searching for the praise of humans rather than from God. So I hope I'm never a famous preacher. I, you know, I don't have any great ideas. I know I'm never going to be a famous preacher, so <laughs> that, that, that one's covered, right? But I, I actually pray for my kids that they never become famous because I don't want them to ever have to face that temptation. Now, if they ever become famous, then that's the road that they're going to have to walk, and I'll trust God with that. But I'd rather not my kids be ever famous. The Beatles believed they were bigger than Jesus. And I think it's because when people start singing your praise, you begin to believe what the people say. When people start telling you how great you are, you begin to believe it. And it becomes like a drug, and you desire more and more of it. And the result is you begin to care more about man's opinion than God's. And I think we see every day, especially in our culture, how fickle man's opinion is. How quickly it changes. One day you can be like a god to other humans, and the next you could be the biggest enemy in the world. Living for man's approval has devastating effects, and you will never, you will never, you will never live up to the hype. So here Jesus is warning against the self-righteous way to live. Practicing your relationship or trying to prove your relationship with God to other humans. And he goes on. He's going to give us three examples. We'll cover two of them today. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So what are some more of the ways? So we've already talked about how, how their spiritual practices were fasting, giving to the poor in prayer. So he's going to walk us through these examples, right? So the first one he gives us is thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. So this is the first expression of that self-righteousness that Jesus is addressing, and that's giving to the needy. Throughout the Old Testament, we see an emphasis, actually, on giving to the needy. God instructs the Israelites to give. This is one of the ways that a community actually flourishes, is when those who have more give to those who have less. So giving to the needy is not the issue that Jesus has here. I think that's important for us to recognize. Giving to the needy is not the issue. Instead, it is people who give to be recognized as righteous. Essentially, they're trying to buy their righteousness, right? By giving to the needy. And so they're trying to show everyone. They're doing it in front of everyone. They're trying to show everyone. And he, he says, sound no trumpet. Now, uh, there's no actual evidence of anyone ever like blowing a trumpet before they gave to the needy. There's no evidence anywhere. So some think that this might be tied to the practice of blowing a horn when a special need occurred at the temple. So at the temple, when there was a special need, they'd blow a horn and kind of announce to the world, hey, come in, we need some more giving, we've got this special project. 
Other theologians think that this is a word play here. Uh, money in the synagogue was collected in the same type of horn that was used to, to make a trumpet. And it was actually fairly loud when they'd throw the, so they'd have a box, they'd throw the coins in the box. And when those coins hit, hit that, trump, that horn that was shaped, it would make this like loud clanging noise. And so the idea was that as people came in, if you really wanted to be known as a good giver, you'd really like ratchet up your arm, warm it up and toss it in there. And you'd have a lot of coins. So it'd be like a clink, 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 instead of just a small little clink. You know, you, didn't want in, you don't ever want to walk in and just have one little clink because everyone would know you don't give a whole lot. So you'd really want to like shake it up. Maybe you'd like give a couple at a time. Clink, 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 clink. And just let that roll on for a couple minutes while everybody looked at you. And you could just give them that smug smile of like, hey, look how wealthy I am. Look how righteous I am. Either way, Jesus is using a metaphor here to illustrate a point. The audience would have heard this and laughed. They knew no one blew trumpets. But we all know the person that might as well have. We all know the person that gave to some charity and will never let you forget it. Maybe they didn't sound a trumpet, but they did toot their own horn. So Jesus is using a little bit of word play and getting some laughs as he makes a point. So he says, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Now, Jesus used this term hypocrite, which we're kind of familiar with now, 17 times. And it literally just means actor. Before Jesus this word was not a pejorative. Now when you call someone a hypocrite, right away, that's like an offense, right? How dare you call me hypocritical? But before Jesus, it just meant actor. So Jesus, this is actually like a Jesus-ism. It started with Jesus and has, has kind of entered the Western world. And now we all know hypocrite, that's an insult. And it means, nowadays, it means to be self-righteous. But on the inside, we all know that that person isn't that righteous. So it means to like flaunt your religiosity while at home you're totally someone else. When, G when Jesus first used it, it just meant to act a part. It just means to be, be an actor, right? So that's where, the, where that term hypocrite has its roots. So Jesus gave this word a new meaning. But starting here, it just simply means someone who is acting like someone they are not. So he's saying those people who are tooting their own horn are just acting the part. Are they really, really righteous? They're expressing their righteousness before men. But are they really living in right relationship with God? How easy is it for us to fool others? It's so easy to make others believe that you are in right relationship with God. You just show a little spiritual practices. You memorize some verses. You've got your doctrine down and the proof text to go along with it, right? And now we know that you are righteous. Even though you can just be acting it in front of everyone. Just 
playing the part. So I think if we look at the last couple sections of this sermon, we would come to the conclusion that those self-righteous religious leaders weren't really righteous. They weren't really living in in right relationship with God. They know what religious practices to perform to make people think they are in right relationship with God. And that's a dangerous game to play. So these hypocrites that are acting the part, they have their reward. That's what he lets us know, right? He doesn't say, don't do it as the hypocrites do because they're self-righteous and that they're never going to have a reward. No, he tells us. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So what is their reward? It's praise from other humans. That's it. That's their reward. They've received it. Other people think they're righteous. That's their reward. That's a pretty bad reward if you ask me. But that's the reward they get. Next, Jesus gives us how we can avoid this type of hypocrisy. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So notice right off the bat, That it's not an if you give to the needy, but when you give. There is an expectation in Scripture that you give to the needy. This doesn't mean that you have to give to every panhandler you come across. Not every panhandler on every corner you have to give to. You can. But the culture in Jesus' day was actually much different from ours. There was more community. The community was tighter-knit. People knew each other. People knew who the needy were and were charged to take care of them. Because of the community, there was a built-in accountability. The swindlers, on the other hand, were typically run out of town. In fact, Proverbs 11.15 gives warnings to not give to those who are strangers, who are not part of the community, because they can so easily wreak havoc that it's actually a foolish thing to do, to give to people who are not a part of the community. Because when you give to someone who's not a part of the community, there's no accountability. So with that said, there is an expectation to give. And part of that is being part of the community where you know the needs of the community. So in this church, we have a community. And we are, we are a church that's in a part of a bigger community of Doney Park. Do you know others in this community? In the church community? In the Doney Park community? In the Flagstaff community? If you do not know others, how will you help others who have a need? By pursuing relationships, you begin to know others' needs. Not just financial, financial, but emotional, spiritual, relational. And as you discover other people's needs, you begin to help with those needs. In the context of community. And then people become less like charity projects for you to fix. Just to show how righteous you are and more like friends, and there becomes an interdependence within the community. 
So there have been many people in this community that have helped me with all kinds of areas of my life. And I don't think they ever saw me as a charity project. They helped me because they are in my community and they saw a need that they knew they could help with. This actually brings more dignity to others as you give. And I've done the same thing. I've been in community with people. I've seen a need. And I've just simply filled the need because they were in my community. And I loved them. They weren't some special project for me. And when I do that, I actually give them more dignity. So giving in the context of community helps us to give not out of obligation or having a charity project that you need to fix, but because we love our community. And it's a way of showing love to others in the community. So Jesus uses, I think, a piece of hyperbole to show us, to demonstrate us this. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, that's, that's like an impossible task, right? We, our right hand and our left hand is connected. Of course it's going to know. So I think Jesus is using hyperbole here, and I think he's using it to give us an example, to kind of show us exactly what he means. And what he means is that you live this righteousness out so thoroughly in your life that it just becomes second nature. For example, how many people in here drive a manual? Yeah, all right, yes. Sorry for you that don't drive a manual. You're still automatic people. That's okay. We still love you. Uh, I'm pretty self-righteous, aren't I? <laughs> I'm better than you because I drive a manual. Like, that's a good skill to have. Uh, anyways, uh, unless, unless you're a truck driver, I don't think that's a, you, you can get by with an automatic. Anyways, what I'm saying here is when you drive a manual, you get so in tune with your feet moving and your hands moving and you're constantly moving that, uh, that you, it's just flowing naturally, right? When you first start to drive your manual, you might destroy a car. Am I right? Like you, you lift up on that clutch way too fast and you jerk the whole car around and nobody ever wants to ride with you. Or maybe you let it out so slowly that you can never actually pick up speed. But as you get used to it and you start practicing it and you start working, it just becomes so natural in your life that it's just like you don't even have to think about it. Your right hand is on the, on the stick shift. Your left hand is on the wheel. And your right hand and your left hand don't even really have to communicate because it's so naturally flowing out of what you've been practicing, of who you are now. It becomes part of who you are. That's why you think you're more righteous than other people who can only drive automatics. But I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at here, is that don't let your left hand know what you're... He's not saying don't pay attention to your finances. We read throughout the Proverbs, throughout Scripture, that sound financial policy is a good thing. But he's saying that as you give, as you just give because God has made you righteous, and so you're just living out the righteousness that God has already placed in you, then it just becomes this natural thing. And you don't need to announce to anybody that you've done this. You don't need to go sound the trumpet, go post it all over social media. You don't need to even tell anyone else. You're just doing it naturally. In fact, so naturally that you might not even realize that you're doing it. Because it's such a part of your nature now. I think that's what this hyperbole is getting at. 
So you just do it naturally. The next example Jesus gives is prayer, but once again, we're going to skip that, and we're going to go straight to verse 16 and fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Once again, these are spiritual practices of Jesus' day, fasting. When we think of spiritual practice, we can't help but to uh, how we grow in God's grace. We think of, once again, Sunday service, prayer, reading our Bible, and we oftentimes forget about this idea of fasting. But fasting, uh, we see throughout Scripture, Moses and Elijah fast in the Old Testament. In Joel, we find fasting as an activity for repentance. So it's actually a part, part of the prescription Joel gives. Like when you repent, repentance means recognizing your sin and turning away from your sin and turning towards God. That's what repentance is. And part of the activity that was associated with, with repentance was fasting. Joel actually gives us that prescription. So Joel talks about it. In Leviticus, God actually commands the entire nation of Israel to fast on the Day of Atonement. The entire nation was going to fast. Jesus himself fasts. And we even read throughout Acts that the disciples fast. So what is fasting? Fasting is going without food for a set amount of time in order to focus on God with an attitude of humility and dependence. Instead of depending on food, you turn toward God. It teaches humility because it reminds us of how fragile we are and how much we need God to survive. So it was a spiritual practice then, and I think is a spiritual practice now that can help us grow and mature in our relationship with Christ. Now, fasting can't actually make us right with God. It's not like the more you fast, the more righteous you will be. But it can help us grow and mature in our righteousness that God has imputed to us. And once again, the problem that Jesus had wasn't with fasting itself. Jesus fasted. It was with the way they practiced fasting. So the self-righteous religious people of the day were fasting in a way that others would see and would say, to the, say, wow, that must be one righteous person. Can you believe God must really love them? And so how did they fast so that other people would see that? They would contort or disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So essentially they would, the hypocrite, the actor, would get into costume, right? They needed to look the part so that they could act the part. So that others could look on and think, wow, look how much he's suffering for God. He must be super righteous. And they have a reward. What is their reward? That others see them. That's their reward. They have received their reward. Other people think they're righteous. That's it. That's their reward. 
Now, you and I probably don't struggle with this often. We, I've never seen anyone come into church with a contorted face, looking miserable, and think, man, they must be fasting. <laughs> Super righteous. Awesome. But what are some other ways that as Christians we kind of show off how righteous we are? Maybe you carry a big Bible with lots of notes and torn pages where you've duct taped it just so that people could see how righteous you are, right? Because, we, let's all face it, the bigger the Bible with more notes, the more righteous you are, right? Maybe you have your theology down and you show, or maybe, maybe every time the church doors are open, you show up. Because the more you are in this building, the more righteous you are. Am I right? Maybe you have a lot of re- awards from Awana. And you, like, you have an Awana trophy case that just shows, boom, I have memorized. Maybe you memorize books of the Bible and you just love, boom, I can quote Bible scripture to you, reading all the time, I'm just there. I've got the verse you need because I am more righteous. Now, all of these things are good things. Being in the building of the church with fellow believers, that's a good thing. Having a big Bible, well, if you want big biceps, that's a, big, that's a good thing. But, but having a Bible with lots of notes, that's great, right? You, yeah, let's write notes. We're spoiled. We have lots of Bibles. We can write it all over them. Memorizing scripture in Awana, that's great. Do it. Memorizing books of the Bible, man, I think that's so helpful. But none of these things actually make you righteous. Only God makes you righteous. In fact, this stuff doesn't even prove your righteousness. You can do all of this stuff and have a completely jacked up heart. And we've seen that over and over again. We, saw, we see that in the Pharisees that Jesus is confronting, but we see it with the hypocrites in America today. And we see it all over the place. So none of this stuff can even prove that you're righteous. If you're doing something to prove your righteousness to yourself or to, the, to others, you're actually doing the exact same thing the Pharisees were doing. You're contorting your face so that people would know that they're fasting. So what's Jesus' solution? But when you fast, now notice again, he doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. Anoint your head and wash your face. So anoint your head and wash your face. So instead of like getting in costume to play the part, letting everyone know how much pain you are in for God, just do it quietly and do it for the right reasons. So Jesus instructing to anoint your head, that's kind of like putting oil, it's putting oil on to freshen up. And I would think of it as like putting on makeup to cover up a pimple, right? So the Pharisees, like, if fasting was a big old pimple, they'd be, like, showing it off. Like, hey, look how disgusting I am for God. But he's suggesting, like, hey, cover it up. Make it so that people don't even recognize that you have a pimple. Make it so it's not even a conversation piece. Wash your face. Cover up. So washing your face is the idea that instead of dressing the part to act out the part, you actually do the opposite. 
You don't even need to give hints that you are in the midst of a spiritual practice right now. You don't even need to hint at it. And then he goes on, after he gives us that advice, he says, that your fasting may not be seen by others. So you don't need to talk about it. You don't need to bring it up front to everyone. This is about you and God. And reminding yourself that you need to depend on God. That actually God is more important to you than food. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So when you do this, your Father in heaven will reward you. Now, he doesn't say what the reward is going to be. Don't start filling in that blank, right? He doesn't, it's like, oh, sweet, if I fast and I give to the poor, I'm going to get a new Tesla. That's not the promise here. Or the other material thing that you wanted, that's not the promise here, right? We don't know what the reward is, but we do know that God will reward. And we have to trust that as we do these things that God has asked us to do, without advertising it, when we do it out of an authentic desire to know him more, he rewards us for that. So these are the spiritual practices that were big in those days. And certain people dressed up and they contorted themselves and they made a spectacle as they did these things to show how righteous they were and win the applause of other humans. But no human can actually declare you righteous with God. No human can actually say you have a right relationship with God. No one in this room can declare that you are righteous. No one in this room can make you more righteous. No one in this room can make you less righteous. You can't buy your righteousness. You can't earn your righteousness. You can't perform enough for your righteousness. The only way you can become righteous is by putting your faith and trust in Christ. That's it. Because in order to have a right relationship with God, we need to recognize, first of all, that our relationship with God was broken. Every single one of us at some point in our life has shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I'm going to do things my way. Every single one of us has rebelled in some form against God. And because every single one of us has done that, every single one of us has broken our relationship with God. And because he is a holy and just God, we can't earn that back. We can't work hard enough to get back into that right relationship. But also because he is a loving God, he knew that and he came and he paid the price that you earned for your rebellion by dying on the cross for your sins. And the only way you can be made right with God again is by recognizing that he came and paid the price for you. And when you put your faith and trust on, on, in him and on his work on the cross, he automatically makes you righteous. So none of these spiritual practices can ever make you righteous. And you have to recognize that. Whatever spiritual practice you do then isn't for your own righteousness. You do it for him and him alone. To grow in your relationship with him. Because he's provided the way to have the right relationship with him. 
Now you want to grow in that relationship with him, and so you practice these spiritual practices. Everything else, any spiritual practice done to show others how righteous you are is really self-righteousness. And you have your reward. Other people thinking that you're righteous. When you do these religious or righteous practices for others, that's your reward. So let us as a congregation be a congregation that practices what God has called us to with only a thought of pleasing him, with only a thought of growing in his grace, with the only thought being of maturing in the righteousness that he has imputed to us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that our righteousness isn't up to us, but that you have already covered it. You've already made us righteous. You've already placed us in that right relationship with you. All we have to do is grow in it. And we pray that you would help us to continue to grow in that, to not care about what other people think, to not let those other people try to influence us, to not do things just to prove to other people that we are, in fact, more righteous, but that we would recognize you've already made us righteous. You've already made that right relationship. And we pray that you would help us then live that out. That it would become so much of a part of us that our left hand wouldn't even know what our right hand is doing. It would just be a part of our nature. In your name we pray. Amen.